Today we'll be discussing the television show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and we'll be discussing trichotillomania. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, in honor of its fourth season, which just came out on Amazon Prime, we'll be discussing The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And we'll be discussing compulsive hair pulling, also known as trichotillomania. Couple things, Ollie, before we get started. I always want to call it the marvelous Ms. Maisel, like the MS, like Ms. Pac-Man, you Mm -hmm. know? I don't know why. You're an independent man and you value independent women. I think that's that's what that's right. Yeah, there we go. That's That's one thing. The other thing I want to tell you is do you know what these two topics have in common? Mrs. Maisel was a hair puller? Well, I know. I I was hoping that there would be something like that, but no, that's not it. It's actually, I don't think you'll ever guess this. They were just two like uh, listener suggestions. I was going to say audience members. I guess they're audience, but listener suggestions. The worst thing you could have done just now is give me like three or four guesses. I would have gone like, Amy Sherman Palladino, writer (laughs) and creator, has a daughter who once pulled her. Okay. Listener suggestions. Thank you very much. Now that makes me feel like I'm not in touch with the listeners and their suggestions, but um, it is Asif who handles the admin side of things. And we, and this is two different listeners, separate, yeah, not yeah. the same listener. So okay. Mrs. Maisel was suggested by a listener named Patty, P-A-D-D-Y. Oh, yeah. Not Patty, P-A-T-T-Y. No, not more of the Patty. Irish. No, yes, more of the uh, Irish, yes, Patty. exactly. Yeah. And the other one was from Grace G-R-A-C-E. I think that was pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. uh, yeah, (laughs) No uh, no Y in grace this time, huh? No, not for this one. And she asked about trichotillomania. So, uh, yeah, why don't we uh, get started? Great. We're going to get started, first of all, by me asking you, Asif, have you watched... The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay, so... Okay, I don't like the way that starts. Full disclosure, I have seen the pilot. I just recently, because then we decided to do this episode of the podcast, so I said, okay, I better at least watch the pilot. So it's not like I watched it years ago and then didn't ever watch it again. I just watched the pilot like last week. Right. So then I guess what we need to do is sort of start this episode with an apology to our listeners. I'm sorry, <laughs> Dr. Doja doesn't have the sense. It's not a sense thing. I Look, this basically the way I'm going to structure this is, is to kind of, you know, give you a sales pitch on why you should watch this show. And I'm sure there's many people who haven't. You just sort of don't get around to things. Although, you know, it was a pandemic and there was more time on our hands than had been in the past. But anyway, that's not you know, again, what are we talking about here? You're, you couldn't get to it. People can't get to it. These things happen. What did you think of the pilot? Let's let's go yeah. there so first. So the pilot, I thought, uh, was actually unbelievable. It's one of the best pilots I've ever oh seen for yes. any TV show. 
it's almost like a movie. Like I was like, is this the end of the whole series? It's almost like because there's such an arc that happens into it. And I should ask, uh, you know, I have a, a friend who writes for television series and I should probably, I know you have quite a few friends who do, but I should probably ask them, like, is that actually how you make a good pilot? I watched another pilot the other day of the show Heels, H-E-E-L-S. Mm-hmm. Wrestling? Yeah, it's Stephen Amell, who used to be in the show Arrow, made by Michael Waldron, who made the Loki TV show. But he actually had been making this show for a while. So it's about, yeah, a small town family in Georgia, rural Georgia, who has this wrestling company. And it's it's basically it's Friday Night Lights, but instead of football, it's wrestling. That's a good way of thinking about small town and what kind of goes on in that town. And that pilot as well is just extremely well done so because again it's almost like a full arc and then then there's a climax and then something crazy happens at the end and that's what i thought with the marvelous mrs Maisel is you just get to know all these characters are so interesting then they have this big climax at the end like i said it's almost like a mini movie so i definitely liked it and i've definitely heard about and i think the acting is amazing I definitely heard a lot about the show, you know, even beforehand. Like, I know about Amy Sherman Palladino, who you mentioned before, because uh, she was Gilmore Girls. Like, that was her big hit. Then she made another show called Bunheads, which is about ballet. I didn't watch that one, but I certainly heard about it. It got a lot of good press and good reviews. And then she kind of came up with this. So, do you know any more about the background of the show? And, like, just tell me a bit more about it. Because I'm intrigued by the pilot. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by the fact that you loved the pilot and then didn't watch any more. Like, I love the idea of, uh, that was amazing. Let me not ever watch anything. It can only go downhill from here. It's intimidating. I'm like, okay, this is good. But then it's three seasons. And then the fourth one starting soon. So yeah, I got to get caught up. Can I get caught up before the fourth season starts? I was all stressed about it. And I think it's intimidating. Now, these are short seasons. I think they're like. 10, maybe 13 episodes. So they're not that big, but my friend Rob just told me the story. His partner said, okay, you know what we should do? We should do a rewatch of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Oh, okay. So he was looking at it online. He's like, what? There's 15 seasons. It's still going on. And each season is 22 episodes. He's like, this is impossible. We cannot do this. Like I have a life. So he was just intimidated (laughs) and just, just, you know, threw in the towel and was like, I can't do this. Yeah. I mean, that's fair with, um, Grey's Anatomy, that's crazy. Move on to the other Shonda Rhimes vehicles. There's a lot of great stuff out there. But let me ask you this. Let's say you haven't called a friend in like four months and you're like, oh my God, I haven't called them in four months. And then let's say four months becomes eight months and then it becomes a year and you haven't called a friend a year. Do you just go like, I'm just never going to call that friend again? I'm just done. I, I can't. It's just been too long. You know, I'm sure some of my friends have listened to the podcast and they're and they thinking, go, yes, he oh does. my gosh, <laughs> that's what happened. Uh, no, Come on. I, I, in general, always... I don't do that. In general, I don't do that. I'll tell you my experience with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You know, I was, uh, like everyone, subject to the propaganda of the show. I'd read some, I mean, you know, I hadn't gone in-depth, not in-depth articles like I've read now, but I'd read a few things and I'd heard some buzz. I didn't have Amazon at the time, you know, it was my own silent protest. I was like, I will not get Amazon. Oh, yeah. And then I'm sitting on, course, a, on a flight. Now I do. Mm. Uh, the protest is over, but it will continue again once we finished season four of Mrs. Maisel. Maybe. I don't know. I literally got Amazon for Mrs. Maisel. Oh, well. Here's the way most human beings work, Asif. They love something and then they go further and you know try to discover that thing. I was in a flight. I think I was going to Calgary. So Toronto, Calgary is about a four hour, four Mm -hmm. plus hours. So 
I start watching Mrs. Maisel on the flight. I'm like, this is amazing. It's I, I'll be able to watch it. And I could not stop. And, you know, I had work to do. I had a nap I was going to take. I had plans for that flight that did not involve Mrs. Maisel. Everything scrapped. Watched the show. After we landed, people are unbuckling. I'm still trying to watch as much as I possibly can to get as much in me, you know, thinking to myself, who knows when I will be able to watch this show. I don't have Amazon. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm calling my wife. I think we need Amazon. And she was like, that's stupid for one show. But but that's basically what happened. I just want to take a quick aside here about shows that you start watching on airplanes because this is a common thing that happens. I mean, it happened more when we were flying more pre-pandemic. But so the two shows I just want to mention, one show that I actually got into, which is one of the best shows in television, is Atlanta. Each season I've only watched on the airplane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all of season one and all of season two on like long flights. And I just watched the whole thing. I mean, that show is so good. And we got to do an episode about that because the third season is coming out soon. Mm -hmm. And the other show, which is the best airplane show. I don't know if you can even guess which one I'm going to say. It's a comedy show. It's a bunch of sketches. It's half an hour. Portlandia. Of course. Portlandia. Yeah, Portlandia is, is great. The best, it's the best. Great yeah, it's the best airplane show because it's sketches, so you don't have to watch them in order. And it's always enjoyable. But it's the one show. It's Atlanta. I'm going to watch off an airplane, obviously. But Portlandia, <laughs> I just save for the airplane. I don't save watch it airplane. at any other time. Yeah. Shout out to the airlines who do so much bad stuff in the name of customer service, but they're giving us good content. In fact, Asif, you had told me years ago, you were like, listen, you were a caterer. That's Asif talking to me because I was mm -hmm. a caterer. You know that world of like food better than more people and you love comedies. There's a show called Party Down, mm -hmm. which is a sitcom about the catering world. And I had never heard of it. And on a flight one day, I was like, well, looky what we have here. And I watched, I think, eight episodes of Party Down, which I otherwise... Might not have seen. I don't even know where you watched it. It was like not widely available. No, it was hard to find. Yeah. We've been doing a reunion. It's like Adam Scott, Kristen Bell. Like You'll know half the people because they're big stars now who are in the show. Yeah. But that's a great show too. So sorry, I really, this is quite the tangent. So Quite the tangent, but my fault talking about, you know, still, I mean, we're on the tarmac. I'm trying to cram it all into me. And so- it was truly something special. And then one of the best things I listened to was an interview with Tony Shaloub. Tony Shaloub, who beloved actor from Monk, from Wings many years ago, if people remember that show. Mm -hmm. It was his interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I think I mentioned Terry Gross a lot. I'm a huge fan of that show. It's an NPR show. So Tony Shaloub on NPR talking about his role as Abe, the patriarch. The sometimes spineless, uh, often neurotic patriarch in this family. He painted the picture of like the rehearsals they have to do, the choreography they have to do. Not everybody gets time. We've talked about this on the show that we, not every show gets rehearsal time. Sometimes if you show up on set, you have maybe a half an hour in a makeup trailer to go over your lines with your fellow actor who you've just met for the first time. There's not a lot of time to even build rapport that you feel you might need to really nail a scene. This is the opposite. This is a huge budget. This is lots of time. And I think if you like Gilmore Girls, and if you like the pace of Gilmore Girls, and by pace, I mean rapid fire delivery of all these, you know, the lines and the wit and the back and forth, the repartee, it has definitely a lot of that same energy, this show. And so it's possible that Amy Sherman Palladino 
just knew what it takes to make a show like this. But on top of that, I will say if you like musicals, Chicago, Les Miserables, whatever it is that you, whatever your musicals content is, this show operates like a musical in the sense that knowing the acting world a little bit on my end, I know like you have to hit your marks. You have to, your feet have to land in an exact place because that's where the camera is going to be at this exact moment. And you have to be saying this exact line and every take, it has to be the exact, done exact same way. It's the same reason why a nightmare for many directors is a scene around the table, a food scene. Because it's the opposite. It's like continuity. It's like, oh, now there's less food in the plate. Oh, last time they delivered the line, the fork was in their mouth. Now it's in the plate. And you can't have any of that. Everybody has to land. And there's a lot of like long shots. So not edited. It is truly fantastic. It's it's masterful in direction. It's masterful in dialogue. It is masterful in as far as all of these awards that they won. I'll just rattle off a few Outstanding directorial achievement, outstanding lead actress, outstanding supporting actor, outstanding cinematography, outstanding hairstyling, music supervision, outstanding period costume. So the show nails it in every department. It really did a phenomenal job. And so, as I say, if you like musicals, if you like Gilmore Girls, and this show was also the Jerusalem Post many years ago described it as a celebration of Jewishness. And this is even more so than Seinfeld. You absorbed a few things over the years, various Yiddish and Hebrew sayings and different customs, you know, not all the good ones. Not everybody wanted to see a rabbi bend over and and suck out the blood of a newly circumcised boy. Not a rabbi, but a moil. But we learned things collectively as a society about Jews at large. Let's say, you know, even, even cultural Jews. I really feel the same way about this show. And finally, I think the thing that really does it for me with this show is that it's interesting, if you know Gilmore Girls, the Lee, Lorelai, she was always determined to subvert or escape the expectations of her parents, right? Very, very wealthy parents. She was always trying to go in, in a different direction. And so when you first see Mrs. Maisel, when you first see Midge Maisel, it feels like that's not the case at all. It feels like it's a completely different show because she's an Upper West Side Jew in the late 50s. Life is good. She's a loyal wife. Money is coming in. Everything is just beautiful. And as you said, the pilot reveals all so much where she, over the course of the pilot, becomes another sort of Lorelai who's subverting expectations. And so this show is also about that. Obviously, I connect with people living their dream despite what society would expect for them to do and it's a great story of an underdog as well. You know, who a woman in comedy in 1958. Women in comedy right now, right now in 2022, I still have female friends who have to hear audience members go, yeah, you know, normally I don't like female comedians, but you were, I mean, that's still pervasive. You imagine in 1958. So it's such a great show from all those perspectives. And then finally, dude, if you're not convinced to hurry up and go watch Mrs. Maisel, the casting is truly something. Again, I'll go to the Gilmore Girls thing. You know, Amy Sherman-Palladino knows what she likes. She's worked with people over the years who have really, you know, delivered for her. And one of those people is Alex Bornstein. Do you remember Alex Bornstein? Yeah, I know her from Family Guy because she plays Lois on Family Guy. She's on Mad TV. Mad TV, yeah, too. Yeah, that's Mad how I TV. remember her, yeah. Very Doing fun. sketches that would be super inappropriate 
today. Uh, oh, yes. I remember her character. All. Let's not even talk her, about it. Yeah, exactly. You just reminded me of her main character. That yes, she played on exactly. The, on, on so okay. those would not fly today, but that doesn't change the fact that she's a phenomenal comedian and an incredible performer. And she was on Gilmore Girls previously as well. She was, I can't remember, Sneak or Spook or Stooky. Or, I can't remember. It's something like a double O. Anyway, I didn't, I, remember, I didn't watch enough Gilmore Girls to soak it all up. Then I'm sure... You know, superhero nerd that you are, you've watched Shazam, Asif. Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've watched Chuck. So the lead in both those shows is Zachary Levy Pugh or Levi Pugh. I don't know if it's Levi or Levy Pugh. What? A Pugh? Is that? I didn't know that Pugh was his last name. He goes okay. by Zachary Levi professionally. But. Pugh's in there now. Pew's in there. Did he marry somebody with the last name Pugh? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Keep on going. doesn't matter. Marin Henkel, who plays Rose, Abe's wife. I keep wanting to say the elder Miss Maisel, but it's not. Maisel is her, her married name. But she was, and of course, you'll forgive the fact, hopefully, that she was Judith on Two and a Half Men. But she is absolutely phenomenal in the role of, uh, of Rose. She's been nominated for um, Supporting Actress, Outstanding Supporting Actress for an Emmy. Two years in a row. Also, Jane Lynch. People will know Jane Lynch from a hundred different places. Jane Lynch notoriously does not say no to any roles. Most people might know her from Glee. In our house, we know her as Ricky Bobby's mother in Talladega Nights. That's the most important role she's ever played. Sterling K. Brown, who has done a ton of work in his life and has an incredible career, but I think the best I've ever seen that dude is in This Is Us. He is so phenomenal and he plays a completely different character in Maisel. And then speaking of This Is Us, Milo Ventimiglia, or is it Milo Ventimiglia? He's amazing. He's done a bunch of things as well, but he's also in This Is Us and he was in Gilmore Girls. So Amy Sherman Paladino has worked with him. Kelly Bishop is somebody who she's worked with in the past. She played that, that wealthy mom that I was. So it's like this tried and true proven actors that the director has worked with before. And when you have that trust, and I think that's a big thing, bringing this trust of people onto the, onto the set, you know, that what they're capable of. And it's, um, I don't know, it really, really works. Speaking of the casting, I, again, so because I follow, you know, what goes on in the entertainment industry, I knew about the show, obviously, and I knew about Rachel Brosnahan winning a bunch of awards, Golden Globes, Emmy Awards. It's the type of thing where, like, I don't really, I'm not sure what all the hype is, obviously, because I didn't watch the show. Mm -hmm. And then you watch the pilot, and I'm like, this is like a star. Like, she's easily a star. He's like, where was this person before the show? They're clearly, and it's such a difficult role. You can imagine, like, how, I, I don't know the casting process, but it must have been difficult to find the right person because they have to be uh, funny, be able to do the dramatic part, but really have that charisma that Mrs. Maisel has. And if you don't have that, and because in the pilot, you know, she ends up doing the stand-up. We won't go into the reasons why in case you want to watch it, but she has to have that charisma on stage to attract those people and turn them around who are watching her when she's performing for the yeah. first time. It's just so difficult. She's amazing. I can't say enough good things. Like she has to act like she's a comedian and it has to basically transcend acting. So she's acting, but she's also acting like she's a natural on stage, but also acting like she's a housewife who happens to be natural. There's multiple layers of amazing things that are happening. And I remember a show and I won't name the name, but, the lead character was a DJ and I don't know what she watched to get in character for a DJ, but it was so 
unbelievably artificial. And she was not capable of acting like a DJ. And it was really, really quite bad. And you worry about those things. You know, you're an actor, but can you act like you're this person? I mean, you can act like, let's say, a broken housewife. You can draw on that. You can act like a very stressed CEO of a company. Maybe there's things you can draw. But to be a different career that you know nothing about, like if you put me on some docks unloading boxes, People would look at me, if I don't study that role in depth, people would be like, that's not how you lift boxes. This guy doesn't even know, he bend with the knees. This guy's like, you know, the whole thing looks phony. That's that DJ look completely phony. And there is always that risk. It's not that easy to do something that people do for like 20 years of their career and make it look like, yeah, I can just do this. You have certain mannerisms and certain things. And with Rachel Brosnahan on stage, I can sing her praises all day long. I'm really, it's very, very impressive. Well, I want to ask you a bit more about her character in a second. But by the way, is the that TV show or movie you were talking about, the DJ, was it the Disney original movie Spin that you were talking about with the <laughs> South Asian? It's a South Asian 16-year-old who wants to become a DJ, but of course her parents look down on it and her grandmother. Uh, my daughter loved that uh, Disney movie. That so is not the not show that. I'm talking okay. about. And also a 16-year-old can pull that off a lot more easily than, let's say, a 35-year-old or whatever that actress was doing. Well, Everyone check out Spin on the Disney Channel if you want to watch He's a, a Disney uh, shill. If you want Disney to watch, is paying right. him. A family-friendly Disney Channel movie. Okay. So, but getting back to the topic at hand, which is Mrs. Maisel and Rachel Brosnahan's character of Midge, is she based on somebody in real life? I was wondering yeah. that when I watched it. Amy Sherman Palladino never really mentions it. And that is kind of strange because every article that was written about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel gives a nod to how it is at, at the very least loosely based on the life of Joan Rivers. You know, there might be some shout outs to, to Tony Fields as well, but 1958 stand-up comedian, female in that. I mean, it basically it is Joan Rivers, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, Amy Sherman Palladino did not want, I mean, I, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, it's probably because she didn't want the estate of Joan Rivers sort of coming after her and, and yeah and then because it's not a biopic so you don't want to say it's that when and people will misinterpret what it is exactly but Melissa Rivers Joan Rivers daughter has been like we're not interested in any money we just want like that little mm. bit of respect that it's about my mother but it's easy to say we're not interested in any money after the fact when nothing has been mentioned so I think Amy Sherman Paladino did the right thing in some regard as you say because you don't want it to be regarded as a biopic. You want people to judge it for what it is. But certainly, you know, Lenny Bruce is portrayed there. There's a character, Shy Baldwin, who comes along. He's a black singer who asks Midge Maisel to, to open for him, which was very common in the day, which I also love. I love that idea of comedians opening for musicians. Have you ever done that before? I have not done that. I love that idea. I think it just, it harks back to such a cool time. I have a friend, Evan Carter, who's a comedian. He's one of the OGs in Canada and he's open for Dionne Warwick and Marvin Gaye and the Four Tops. And this wow. was something he was doing in the eighties, you know, and he was touring with them. And I, I just love hearing his stories about that, that world and doing all that. But no, I have never done that. Sorry. Okay. I, again, that was another digression. So that's a digression, but uh, Shy Baldwin, this character mm -hmm. is Basically, you know, Harry Belafonte, that's basically who it's supposed to be. But then always they have a twist in these characters and you go, maybe it's not Harry Belafonte, but, but it certainly seems like it. 
And something I really like right now, if if you haven't watched it or if you're interested in rewatching it, I would say it's a great rewatch, but it is also, it's a lot when you're binging Mrs. Maisel. It's intense. The same way when I tried to watch multiple Gilmore Girls episodes, it's a lot coming at you in a short period of time. And I think the body, the brain, the mind, the soul need time to digest. And that's never more a case than it is with Mrs. May. And I know I said I binged it on the plane when I first started, but that's because I had no choice. But Amazon has done us all a great service, whether you believe it or not. This fourth season is coming out in two parts, two parts, two parts. And I think that's okay. I think certain shows, I think about food always. And uh, <laughs> I think about how some people are like, well, can I just have this like for delivery, for takeout? And some restaurants will be like, that dish is not designed for takeout. It's not designed to sit in a container and absorb the humidity and the moisture and not be eaten when it's whatever, crispy or hot or this. So no, we won't be offering that for takeout because that ruins our name. That And I think it is, if it's okay for a restaurant to do that, it is also okay for an entire production, if not just a director to be like, you know what? This is not meant for 10 episodes in a row. You're going to leave this experience feeling worn out, emotionally drained, beaten, and that's not what we're going for. This is meant to be entertainment. And the fourth season starts, if you've seen the show, the fourth season starts in a um, an amusement park. The way this thing is shot is like an amusement park already. So you basically have a metaphorical amusement park inside an amusement park. It's a lot. It's very intense. And I completely agree with that Amazon decision to not have it be, you know, not have it release all the episodes at once. So this is a show that is best served and digested slowly in one or two episodes at a time. So good for them. There are other shows like that, dense shows. I think about Mad Men. It reminds me of Mad Men a lot because it takes place mm. in the same time period. The sure. Wired. Costumes are a big yeah. deal. Design, set design, huge deal for both of those. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. So you've convinced me, but I think with that caveat that I think you need to kind of don't try and watch eight episodes in a day or something like that and binge them. Like I binge watch MacGruber, <laughs> the TV show. What Ma the heck? This is this has nothing to do with any of that. What are you I know, talking but, about? No, no. My point is MacGruber, you can binge watch in like a day and because it's just a comedy, stupid Oh, I thought you were saying like MacGruber, it no, shouldn't be binge No, it's Unlike, like okay. Mad Men, The Wire, even though it's comedy, you know, based, but it's dense, as you said. Totally. But the Wire's a like, great example. It, By the yeah. third episode of a binge, I'm like, what happened three episodes ago? I can't remember. It's all a blur, right? Yeah. So yeah, you no, need I totally to, agree. Yeah. So I think, so yeah. So what I'm saying is similar to Mad Men, The Wire, not similar to MacGruber, just so Amy Sherman sure. doesn't get on my case. And in the fourth season, Herc, remember Herc from The Wire? He'll be in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's a hundred reasons to watch this show, okay? Celebration of Jewishness, Gilmore Girls, a rapid fire type of wittiness and delivery, incredible choreography. It's like watching a musical. It's incredible dialogue. And as you yourself said, Asif, that pilot 
is maybe the quintessential pilot. It is the best pilot. And I know some pilots, they leave you wanting more. Like, oh, those are interesting characters. I'd like to get to know them. I wonder what happens next. <laughs> this is everything in one, which actually kind of leaves you going, where do they go from here? I just watched the entire thing. That maybe is why I didn't like jump to the next episode. Maybe that's another ah, reason too. That's what I don't know. But it's, it's a really good point now that you're saying it. I'm like, yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. The pilot episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was one of Amazon Video's most successful ever, achieving an average viewer rating of 4.9 out of 5. So even the haters had to admit, this is great. This is a great thing. So if you haven't watched it, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, a little bit of Canadian content, our uh, Canadian-born, Hamilton, Ontario-born Luke Kirby. People might know him from Mambo Italiano because he's a Montrealer. He went to the National Theater School in Montreal. He plays Lenny Bruce in this show who is, you know, and he does a fantastic job doing it too. I don't know. Obviously, you should watch this show. You convinced me. All right. Well, for this part of the show, as Asif mentioned, it was suggested by one of our listeners, and I was pretty interested in this concept. Now, I have a very vague understanding of trichotillomania and a very hard time pronouncing it, but I was also interested because one of my daughters may or may not have had a thing where they would nervously sort of pull out their eyelashes. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not saying Allegedly. she did it. Allegedly. Allegedly. And there may have been something where there was a lot of sort of pulling at split hairs. I don't even know if those split hairs existed. Maybe it was creating split hairs. But there's a lot of like messing around with the hair that allegedly happened in my home. So I wanted to know more about this. And when do you start worrying if it's a pretty serious condition? So first of all, let's talk about what exactly trichotillomania is and also why that name? What does that mm -hmm. word mean? So it comes from the Greek. So trick means hair. And then there's the Greek word tillin, which is pulling. And then mania, which we know it means, you know, madness, frenzy or, okay. or whatnot. Yeah. So that's why mania is at the end of a lot of psychiatric diagnosis. So that's how it works, trichotillomania. What is it? How does it look? What does it look like when somebody's got this condition? It's not that uncommon. It's basically the compulsive and repetitive pulling of one's hair leading to hair loss. And as you said, it could be the hair in your head. It could be other areas of the, of the body as well. So usually the scalp's the most common. That's in like 73% of patients. Then eyebrows is about 56%. The reason why the number is over 100% is because you can pull multiple areas of your body with regards to hair. And a small amount, well, 50% maybe, is the pubic region. So, you know, they think the prevalence of it is about 0.5 to 2%. So it means at least, you know, we just go in the middle there, 1% of the population, one of every 100 people does this. It's not uncommon at all. The studies show that probably it's underdiagnosed. They think that a lot of people don't seek medical attention to it, despite it being because sometimes it really interferes with your life. Because they think a they're not sure it's a problem, or it's a they're not sure it's a medical or psychiatric problem, and they're not sure what people can do about it. If even if they told their doctor about it, that answers a question I was going to have about its cure. But tell me first of all, how is it diagnosed? When is mm -hmm. it? You know, because many people would be that type of person who like picks at scabs or picks their hair right. from time to time or picks it, you know, 
dry skin or these kind of, they could be nervous reactions or they could just be like, oh, this is an unsightly thing on my body. I'm going to pick away at it. So how do you diagnose it as something more serious? They actually divide it up into two categories, which is kind of like an unconscious or not being aware of the pulling behaviors. That's called automatic pulling. And then there's this force pulling, which is when you see or feel that hair is not quite right and or it feels coarse or irregular or out of place and you just have to like pull it out. And But both of those can occur in, in trichotillomania. Sometimes it occurs when people, like I said, they don't like a certain feeling of their hair or when they're bored, anxious, angry, or they look in a the mirror and they don't like their hair so they feel they have to fix it like that. There's, there's many kind of reasons why they might do it. But the, the criteria, so again, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, we have this DSM-5 criteria, which we use to diagnose psychiatric disease. So the things you need to have, there's five criteria. One is recurrent pulling of the hair, resulting in hair loss. Two, repeated attempts to decrease or stop the hair pulling. So then you can see why it's kind of this compulsion. And it is different from OCD. We can talk about that in a second. Mm. The, and the hair pulling causes significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other functioning. And then a couple of things at the end, which they kind of include on every DSM criteria, which is that it's not due to another medical condition. So the hair loss yeah. isn't due to alopecia or something like that. And it's not better explained by another mental disorder. So, Right. In fact, that's what I wanted to ask. And you mentioned OCD. Does trichotillomania just live on its own in many people or is it often associated with something else? Is, is it some other compulsion or disorder that people are suffering from? And this is one of the ways they are... I guess, dealing with it. It definitely occurs with other disorders. So anxiety for sure, a major depressive disorder, and substance use in a small amount of patients as well. So it's important to kind of ask about those other things. The OCD is very interesting because initially they thought it was maybe just a subset of OCD, but it's generally thought that it probably is a bit different. We'll get into treatment in a second, but the treatment that you use for OCD is something called exposure and response prevention, which we talked about on a previous episode, and it's habit reversal for trichotillomania. So there's slightly different behavioral approaches. And for example, when we talked about OCD, we talked about SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. We use those for depression and anxiety, but they do work in OCD. But a lot of controversy about whether they actually work in OCD or not. Recent meta-analyses probably suggest that they probably don't work that well. So the thought is you shouldn't lump these together and they probably are two different things. I'm still not sure if we have a reason for why it happens. Like why does somebody choose hair mm -hmm. over any other type of behavior? What is it that draws people to that? As always, there are some studies that they look at what we call functional MRI scans to kind of look at the areas that are triggered by the hair pulling. But those things are, there's not tons of studies on that. So I think we still don't know. But if you look at it from a behavioral standpoint, what some people theorize is that you have a stressful situation or perhaps it's opposite, it's boredom that initiates you, you know, so you're bored and you start doing this or you have a stressful situation that causes you to do this. So you relieve the stress, you relieve the boredom by doing this. And then, so you have this tension whether it's because of the boredom or, or the stress, then you do this behavior and then it relieves the stress and then you do it more. So then you create this cycle of a, of a learned behavior. So from a behavioral psychology point of view, that's, that's one theory as to why it uh, occurs. I mentioned the sort of a teen connection that may or may not be happening, but 
you haven't really mentioned who it affects, you know, male, female, age group. Is that something that we know about? It can be seen in all age groups. The onset's more common during kind of the adolescent and young adulthood phase, usually so 9 to 13 years is when you start seeing it. So in other words, mm. pediatrics is when we'd see it. There's a peak around age 12 or 13, which interestingly is, remember, that's when ticks also peak as well. So I don't know if there's a connection there or not. Not a lot in the literature, and I see lots of kids with ticks, don't see a lot of trichotillomania in them. But in preschool children and young children, there's equal distribution between the genders. But then as you get older, there's a female predominance. And by the time you're a young adult, it's like 70 to 93% are female. So you mentioned that you could have a bald spot. That can be embarrassing. How is this something that could really affect your life in an actual negative way? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, you have this low self-esteem and social anxiety. And again, it's kind of reinforcing, right? They have this alopecia hair loss that results from the pulling, and then they feel more self-conscious about that. But interestingly, individuals report a failure to pursue job advancement and avoidance of job interviews in some people mm -hmm. with serious trichotillomania. One-third of adults who have it report a low or very low quality of life. And this I thought you'd find the most interesting is that 20% of patients eat their hair after pulling it, and that's called trichophagia. I especially find that interesting because there's you had mentioned that there's pulling of the pubic hair, and I'm just hoping that it's not the pubic hair that is being eaten. In the, in the Venn diagram of which hair is being eaten, I'm hoping the pubic hair does not fall into the center of that. That is interesting and a little bit disturbing as well. I'll tell you what's more disturbing is that you can have so much hair that's eaten, you get what's called intestinal hairball. Any sort of obstruction of your stomach is called a bezoar. When you have that, this is called a trichobezoar because it's made of hair. And some of these people get these huge hairballs, which can be centimeters and centimeters in size, and they obstruct their bowels because they have the hairball and they need surgery to remove the hairball. That's awful. I'm just picturing what so many people have found in their drain. You know, when you have like a lot, if you live with right. long haired people women in, in my house, and you have like that long clump of hair and picturing that in somebody's body, like in your intestine, that's awful. Oh God. Okay. Don't eat your hair. What is the treatment for this? Is it, I'm sure the DSM-5 talks about slapping your child's hand away from their oil. <laughs> they do no? not. That that's inappropriate. Okay. Well, I, okay. All right. Fine. As we mentioned, it's a chronic disorder. It often kinds of comes and goes over time. One study found a mean illness duration of 21.9 years. So it's a chronic disorder. And even though they come and go, you know, the symptoms, they often persist if you don't treat them. But one of the limitations to the treatment is, as I mentioned before, a lot of people don't seek medical attention. One study of over a thousand people who had trichotillomania, only less than 40% sought treatment from a therapist and only less than 30% sought treatment from a psychiatrist. And again, it's because the vast majority of individuals with trichotillomania believe that providers don't know anything about the disorder, which is relatively true. Like you'd have to do some research to know about it. Psychiatrists do, but not a lot of other providers might. And another reason they don't go is because of shame, embarrassment, again, lack of awareness. They don't think it's a medical condition and fear of a reaction from a healthcare professionals where they might just say something along the lines of what you just said. Stop doing it. The equivalent of, you know, slapping their hand. 
which of course won't work. So just before we talk about treatment, I just want to establish that, that it does not come to medical attention for very many reasons. And when you treat it, you know, response rates are generally pretty low, but if it's recognized early and treated appropriately, up to 50% of individuals can experience a symptom reduction for at least a short term. So in terms of treatment, we talked about it before, habit reversal therapy, which is a behavior therapy, probably works the best. And a lot of these systematic reviews and meta-analysis have looked at SSRIs. Probably they don't work that well. And there's our recent Cochrane review. So Cochrane reviews basically are these systematic reviews that we've talked about before, where they look at all the published studies and assemble all the information together, try and come up with a a recommendation. So they actually recommend a different medication called clomipramine may actually help. So that's what a lot of people end up using. There's other medications as well, another one called olanzapine that may work. Interestingly, there are a couple other promising medications. One is called anacetylcysteine, which I don't know if you, you've probably not heard of it, Ali, but it's used actually in Tylenol overdoses. So for some reason, this thing that prevents your liver from getting the toxicity from a Tylenol overdose can okay. help with trichotillomania. There's another drug, dronabinol, which is actually a cannabinoid, your favorite topic to talk about. That has some evidence as well. So there are some new medications that may, may end up working. So I think overall, the key for this is it can be difficult to treat. If you never go see a doctor or never seek treatment, you'll never know if you're one of those people who the treatment could be effective. And again, the treatment is more effective if it's started early in the course of the disease. So instead of waiting 20 years, people should probably address it early on, especially if it's causing interference with their life. Okay. So here's what we did in our house. When there was some eyelash picking, we said, you look insane right now. And then it stopped. So I don't know. The problem with that is I feel like it might come back at some point based on what you've told me, but it worked. Sometimes you yell at somebody and say they look weird and then it, uh, you know. Yeah. You just remember, he them. is not a doctor. <laughs> not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I have some proven techniques in our house that have worked for a very short period of time. And listen, my children are going to need psychotherapy later on for sure. Don't listen to anything I'm saying. But uh, anyway, it was good to learn about this. And as you say, one to 2%, but probably many more, a much higher percentage because it's been underdiagnosed over, over the years and something that people probably don't want to talk about or address really. Okay, so that's our episode for today. Ali, do you have anything to plug? I think you have some stuff coming up. I got things. I got things. There's stuff. I'm going to be uh, in Halifax at the end of April, Halifax Comedy Festival. Canada Reads is coming up, and that is at the end of March. I'm hosting this fantastic Battle of the Books, one of the great, great Canadian shows of all time, in my opinion. Of course, I'm very, very biased, but it's a, a wonderful show where five celebrities from different industries and different worlds all come together to champion a book that they say every Canadian should read. And in the end, it winds up being something where probably all Canadians should read all five of those books, but there can only be one winner. That's what they say, just like Highlander. There are no body slams or uh, chokeholds, which is why Asif doesn't tune in every year, but the rest of you, decent non-wrestling nerds should tune in. It's at the I end tune of in every year. In fact, I watch it with my kids. They, they are very oh, excited oh, by, finally, the, by the arguments going on. 
but also you have the rebranding of your other podcasts coming up so oh my god we are taking a podcast that we had for a couple of years called eat and drink and that's myself and my friend marco timpano we have rebranded it to call it this podcast is delicious for a couple of reasons number one because the podcast is delicious but number two because eat and drink was not a unique name and it would lead you first and foremost to a religious podcast about Jesus eating and drinking, you know, the wine like the, and the, the body of Christ, the body and, and the yes. blood of Christ. And, uh, Hey, Jesus, good dude. I'm a fan, but that's not what we were talking about. So we rebranded and we're pretty excited about it. And you can find it everywhere that you find your favorite podcast. And it is called this podcast is delicious with Ali Hassan and Marco Timpano. And remember, you can find us not just on your podcast apps, but also on social media. So Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're everywhere. Drop us a line, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about the episode. Other suggestions, like we said, from this episode, purely based on listener suggestions. So we're happy to entertain any other suggestions you guys have. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. And we already established Ali is definitely not a doctor or your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.